Okay. Romans chapter 8, again this morning, making our way through this wonderful chapter on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. It's been said that the Holy Spirit is mentioned more times in this chapter than in any other chapter in the Bible. We've seen Paul lay out the gospel in this letter, taking us from condemnation to justification and into this section that we're in now on sanctification and even into glorification as we looked at in our last section, um, verses 18 through 25. As those who have been justified stand as righteous before God, we are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. He lives in us. He makes his abode with us. There is no believer who is not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and there is never a time when a believer isn't indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He has come upon us at the moment of our salvation, and he lives with us forever. I want to recap for you eight things that we've seen so far in Romans chapter 8 that are ministries of the Holy Spirit in our lives, eight things that we've seen that the Holy Spirit does in our lives um, in the life of the believer. Number one, we saw that he set us free from sin and death, and we saw this back in chapter, or chapter 8, verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. And we talked about this over the last several chapters, really, going back to chapter 6. But here, for the first time, we saw that it was really the Holy Spirit's ministry in us. The Spirit of life set us free from the law of sin and death. That contrast uh, to what we were in the flesh, when we were in the flesh, right? We were under sin, under the penalty and condemnation of death. And along with that, that leads us to the second thing that we've seen, uh, which is related to it, is that he's given us life and peace. There in verse 2, we saw that he is the spirit of life. But then in verse 6, we also saw it where it said, For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. The mind set on the spirit, focused on the spirit, one that is no longer focused on the flesh. It's life and peace. That's now what he brings into our lives. That is what he has brought into the life of the believer. We are now in the state where we are alive in Christ. And we are at peace with God. We didn't have that peace before. We were at enmity with God. But now we stand on God's side at total peace with him. The third thing, third thing that we've seen is that he directs or he leads our lives. We see this in verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We walk according to the Spirit. And then in verse 14, he said, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We walk according to the Spirit. We are led by the Holy Spirit. And we talked about that at length in our last study, right? We read God's Word. We study God's Word. He gives us understanding into God's Word, right? The, the Word of God is the full package of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, right? Because everything that was written down was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So men were moved by God, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these things down. And now we have what they wrote, and the Holy Spirit gives us understanding into what He inspired them to write. 
So the Holy Spirit gives us understanding into his word from start to finish. We read it, we study it, he gives us that understanding, and we willingly yield ourselves over to what it is that he is directing us to within it. We can resist it, and when we sin, that's exactly what we do. But the pattern of the life of the believer is to heed and to obey God's word and to follow after where he leads, walking in the Spirit. The fourth thing that we see is that he dwells in us. And I don't have these in any particular order, basically just moving through the chapter. But this one obviously is key. It's essential. But it shouldn't surprise us that all of these things are are related to one another, right? These are all things that the Holy Spirit accomplishes in us. But he dwells in us. And we mentioned this one already. But we specifically saw it in verse 9. Where he said, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. A believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Anyone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, what are they? They're not saved. They're an unbeliever, not a Christian. They do not belong to God. The Holy Spirit has taken up a residence in us when we believed. He does not leave. He does not abandon us. He is there to stay. The fifth thing that we saw guarantees our resurrection. There's a guarantee of the Holy Spirit of our resurrection, of our future glory. Look at verse 11 where he said, But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. If he dwells in you, well, what did we just see? If you are a believer, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So if you're a believer, what does that mean? That means you will be raised. He who raised Christ Jesus will also give life to your mortal bodies. These bodies of flesh in which we still live, will one day be transformed, will one day be changed into immortal bodies, into glorified bodies. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee, the down payment or the earnest of that promise that we have from God on that fact. It will come to pass. The sixth thing that we've seen is that he has placed us into God's family. Verse 15 said, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. We saw back in chapter 5 that we were what? And I talked about it a minute ago. We were enemies of God, right? When we were in sin, when we were still in the flesh, before we were saved, we were God's enemies. And God took us, sinners, enemies, who wanted nothing to do with him at all and made us a part of his own family, receiving a spirit of adoption, a spirit who brings us into the very family of God and who ministers to us in such a way that we know how to petition and communicate with our Heavenly Father. And we're going to see more of that in our study this morning. But that's part of what the next thing that we see is. Number seven was that he gives us assurance. He assures our salvation. Verse 16 said, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. 
The Holy Spirit ministers to our own spirit, providing us with assurance of our salvation. We see that through his word, which again, he gives us understanding into, right? We look at the the word of God and we understand that that means that we belong to him. But there's also a peace that he provides within us, a peace that allows our own spirit to know and understand that we are children of God. A believer has that assurance through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And the last thing, or the eighth thing that we saw is what we talked about in our last study. He gives us hope. And we talked about suffering and trials that we have in this life. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, there will be suffering. There will be trials. You can guarantee that there will be some type of suffering, some type of trial that will come into your life. They will come. But through the Holy Spirit, we know that we do not suffer needlessly. And we do not suffer hopelessly. We have hope in what God has planned for us and what he has in store for us. Verse 23, he said, And not only this, but we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. There is a hope that we have as his children, where we know, we know that we will one day be with him in glory. That is real. That is a fact. There is nothing that can take that away from us and nothing that can stop that from happening. No matter what we suffer here in this life, no matter how loudly or excruciatingly we groan due to trials, due to things that come into our lives that that make us suffer, There will come a day when these bodies of flesh will have their redemption completed and we will have no more sin. We will have no more pain. We will have no more suffering and we will be with him forever. That is a guarantee. All of these things are guarantees of the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us. Those who have believed in the truth of his gospel. Now we come to verse 26. And in verses 26 and 27, we have a ninth thing, a ninth ministry of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see that he intercedes for us. So he just told us about the trials in our lives. He told us about the suffering that will come upon us. And as we go through trials, personal trials, trials within our church, trials, whatever trials may come up in our lives... We fix our eyes on the hope that is to come. That is where we have our eyes fixed. That is what sustains us. That is what allows us to carry on, to submit to him, to sacrifice ourselves to him daily. We know that's coming. We know that we will suffer and have trials, but we don't suffer alone. We aren't left to suffer these things by ourselves. And that's what Paul brings up next in verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. In the same way, he's connecting this back to to the previous section. 
not only do we have the hope that he just talked about in that section, but we also have the help of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He helps our weakness, Paul says here. This is referring to general weakness. It's a general word for weakness. Not just keeping ourselves from sin, but the weakness that we have from being in unredeemed bodies, corrupted and influenced by sin. But it's, it's a broader sense of weakness than that. It manifests itself in different ways in each person. He says it's our weakness. Paul here is including himself in with the Roman believers and with us. He recognizes his own weakness here as well. He knew it was a battle to do what God wanted him to do in the everyday walk of the Christian. And we saw that back in the end of chapter 7, right? He talked about that even for him, there's a battle in this Christian life. So he says here that the Spirit helps or provides assistance. And it's important to note that he doesn't remove the weakness that we have, the weakness that we have in our flesh. And he doesn't just do it for us, but he provides assistance to us while we are still in the picture, meaning that we still have responsibilities ourselves. The focus here, though, is on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, not on us, on the way in which he functions within us, the way he functions in our lives. As we continue to live and function in these bodies of flesh, and we live in the world with the surrounding corruption that's, that's all around us, we can rely on the help of the Holy Spirit. You understand that as believers, now that we've been saved, we are still weak. We still have that. We've talked about the weakness of the flesh. We talked about how those that are weak in the flesh could not keep the law, right? Because they weren't righteous. Well, you understand, we still have that weakness in our flesh. When we can only function effectively under the strength of the Holy Spirit who indwells us. It isn't under our own strength. As believers, we haven't suddenly been made into spiritual supermen. We've talked about how our bodies have not yet been changed. So in order to function as God intends us to function, we rely on him. We rely on God for our strength. Our lives are identified with Christ. But sometimes we get ahead of ourselves and try to take the lead, thinking that we don't need anything anymore thinking that we're stronger than we are, that we can handle things on our own and in our own strength. Things start to go well, and then we stop turning to God for help in our lives, and we try to do it alone. I can remember back when my kids were, were young, toddlers. It's, it's amazing that I can actually think back to that far. But I have grandchildren now, so I see it in them as well. But there were times where they were just learning how to walk, and they wanted to walk around. And so you'd grab them, and you'd have them hold on to your fingers. Well, some of our kids were a little too independent, and they didn't want you to hold their hands. They didn't want to hold on to your fingers, and they'd get mad at you for trying to hold their hands. So they would pull their hands away. Well, what would happen? They'd fall down, right? Because they needed that strength from you in order to actually do it, but they wanted to do it on their own. Don't hold my hands, I'll do it on my own. And then they fall down. That's how we act at times as believers. Like we don't need God's help in our lives. Like we don't need to rely on the strength of the Spirit and we can just 
do things all on our own. But what's the problem with that? We can't. We have weaknesses in this corrupt body in which we still live. We are not yet glorified. We will get to the point where we have no sorrow, no grief, no pain. We will get there someday. But we're not there yet. That hasn't happened in our lives yet. But in, and until that time comes, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us that provides that help to us. Sometimes what that means is that we get to the point where we're so discouraged, the trials and the pressures seem to be so much more than we can bear, and we don't know what to do. And so we cry out to God, not knowing what to do. And that's exactly what Paul gets into next. He says, for we do not know how to pray as we should. And the word for how in there is really better translated what. And some translations that you guys might have might actually have it that way. But the word what is really the better translation. The idea isn't that we don't know how to pray, that we don't have the right pattern down, but really, we don't know what to pray. There are times where we don't even know what to ask for. I feel like I'm drowning in all this pressure. I feel like I'm crushed under this heavy weight, and I need help. But I don't know what I need. I don't know the answer to the question. I don't know how to get out from whatever it is that I'm under. I don't know. I don't even know what to ask God for. That, this is how weak we really are. We don't know what to pray. I don't know what I need. What is God's will for me in this situation? How do we know? What do we do? Well, turn over with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. There's an example from Paul of this. He, he knew the pressure. Paul, writing from his own experience, he knew the pressure. He knew the uncertainty of praying without understanding of what it was that he was actually praying for. And we have an example of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says in verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Now it says here that Paul was given this thorn in the flesh. Now we don't know exactly what this was. Some people say that it was a physical ailment, a disease of some kind. Some people say that maybe there was an actual demon that was tormenting him. We don't know exactly what this was, but we know why it was given to him. It says it, to keep him from exalting himself, to keep him humble. This was a test or trial that he was supposed to go through. Well, how did he react to it? Look at verse 8. He says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So he prays three times. And not just casual prayers. But there were three distinct times that Paul implored the Lord to remove this thorn in the flesh from him. Take this away from me. But you know what? That was the wrong prayer. That wasn't God's will for him. Look at verse 9. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for the power is perfected in weakness. The Lord's reasoning, his grace is sufficient to carry Paul through the trial that he had given to him to withstand whatever it was that he was suffering. 
And what did Paul realize from this? He goes on in the verse to say, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell on me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is how God works in us. When we are weak, then we are strong. How does that work? That sounds like one of those, how does that work? Because that's when we're relying on God. When we're weak and we understand our weaknesses, that's when we understand we rely on him. That's when we're calling out to him. That's when he can use us as we are yielding ourselves to him and going where it is that he's leading us, right? It's kind of like I talked about with the kid, right? If the kids knew, if they understood that they can't do it themselves, then they'd be holding on tight to your fingers. But when they don't see a need for it, that's when they want to let go. And we like to think the opposite in our own lives, right? We like to think that when things are going well, when we seem like we're on top of the world, everything's going great, and we seem to be so strong, then what do we do? You know what we do. We start to think, maybe not, maybe not in the forefront, but there's a little something in the back of our minds where we don't think we need God as much because we're not crying out to him. That was Paul's problem. God gave him a trial, a suffering, so that he would recognize how much he actually needed God. When things are going well, how diligently do we pray? When things are going well, how often do we immerse ourselves in the Word of God like, like it's a meal that we can't miss? But what about when trials come? What about when something's going horribly wrong in our lives? That's when we're down on our knees praying until our knees ache. That's when we've got our noses glued to the pages and we're crying out to God for help, right? You see, Paul says he would rather boast about his weaknesses so that the power of Christ would dwell in him. Get me out of the way so that God can work through me. And we need to recognize whose ministry this is. It's not our ministry. We're the vessels that God uses to accomplish his purposes here on earth. We are privileged to be used by him. Now, that doesn't mean that we let go and let God, right? There's a phrase that people use out there and say, let go and let God. No, we have responsibility. The Holy Spirit helps us. He doesn't do it for us. But we understand that it's his ministry working through us, and that's how we should see it, and that's how we should conduct ourselves. Our lives are not to be spent thinking about God occasionally, thinking about God when it suits us, but focusing on Him constantly, both when things are going good and when things are going bad, when we're in trials and suffering. Now, the point that we need to take from 2 Corinthians 12 is that Paul wasn't praying in the will of God. He beseeched God three times, but he didn't know what to pray for, which brings us back to Romans. Part of the weakness of this body is an inability to perceive what the will of God is. 
I don't know what God has in store for me. I don't know everything that I'm supposed to do today, tomorrow, next week, next year. What do I pray? When a trial or even a decision comes up, what do I pray? How do I know what God's will is for me? There's always the question, but that's why when we pray, we pray in submission to him. We don't pray arrogantly before him. That's why we need to be open to however God will answer our prayers and make sure that we aren't just giving God commands or suggestions when we pray. God, this is what I need. This is what I'm going to be doing, and you need to be along with me for the ride. You hear people sometimes who say they don't have time for God because God didn't answer their prayers. Some tragedy came into their, into their life and they didn't feel that it was resolved really to their satisfaction. How did they pray? They wanted God to do something and he didn't do that thing that, he want, that they wanted him to do. And as a result, they throw up their hands. I don't want anything to do with him anymore. That's not how believers pray. We pray for the will of God to be done, whatever his will is. Sometimes, many times, that means it's not answered how we want it to be. But we need to be open to his will because we don't know what to pray. But we have the Spirit, the one who does know what to pray. And it says here that the Spirit himself intercedes for us. The Holy Spirit personally intercedes on my behalf and on your behalf. He goes before God the Father knowing exactly what it is that I need in every situation of my life. I don't know what to pray, but guess what? The Holy Spirit who indwells me, He knows what to pray. Now, how does the Spirit intercede? It says here, with groanings too deep for words. Literally, unspoken or unuttered. They are unuttered groanings. In verse 22, we saw that the creation was groaning. In verse 23, we saw that we as believers are groaning even within ourselves. Now we have the Holy Spirit who's groaning. These are not necessarily audible sounds, but it's, it is characteristic of the longing. The groaning gives us the idea of, of earnestly longing for something. And that's exactly what we saw in those other two situations. The creation anxiously awaiting the time when we are revealed and we are glorified and the world has changed. We are groaning and anxiously waiting for that same time. Well, here we have that same thing. It's the characteristic of the longing, the, 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 the earnest longing for something. The creation doesn't literally make an audible sound. The groaning that we do within ourselves isn't necessarily an audible thing either. Some people take this to refer to um, tongues, and they'll say, well, they use this verse, and they'll say, oh, this, this is referring to tongues, right? This is the Holy Spirit, and this is the, the groanings that are unutterable. They're that tongues language. But that's not what this is referring to, mainly because this isn't necessarily an outward sound, Tongues were real. There's a, there's a lot of reasons why this, this isn't tongues, and we're not going to get into a discussion on tongues right now. Maybe when we get to chapter 12, we'll touch on that. But here, the Spirit intercedes in a depth 
in a way that's inexpressible. He carries this ministry on within the believer, interceding on our behalf before God the Father. Verse 27. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He who searches the hearts. This is God the Father. He's talking about God the Father here. He is the one who searches the hearts of men. Psalm 139, 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. It is his work to search out what's in a person's heart, to not merely judge the actions of men, but to judge the hearts and the intentions of them as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. It's only a little ways away. Time is it? Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, down in verse 5. Where he says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will, bring, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. We do not judge men's motives. We can't judge someone's motives. That's God's job. We can look at someone and see what they do and say, Oh, what they're doing, that, that's not right. And we know that that's not right. But sometimes we can see people and we say, oh, what they're doing, that looks pretty good, right? Or they're giving to the poor. They're helping people out. They're, they're saying kind words to people. But we have no idea what's in that person's heart. Here, God discloses the motives of men's hearts. God is the one who searches the hearts of men. And so that's what he's talking about. He knows the hearts of men, and he also knows what the mind of the Spirit is, he says back in chapter 8 of Romans. So the picture that we have here is of the Spirit of God who indwells us, who lives within our hearts. And as we come to God in prayer, in our weaknesses, the Holy Spirit is praying with us, and he's praying for us. So that when God searches our hearts, what does he find? He finds the Holy Spirit praying for us, helping us in our weakness, and He knows what the mind of the Spirit is. That, what a tremendous picture that is. What a wonderful relationship that we now have with God to know that there is that access that we have with the Holy Spirit within us who is interceding on our behalf before God the Father. I don't know how to pray. I don't know what to pray for. But the Holy Spirit does. He strengthens us and he helps us in our times of weaknesses. How does that help us? We don't know the will of God, but the Holy Spirit does. And that's how he intercedes for us. It says he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. He always knows the mind of the Father. He always knows what God's will is. And the Father knows the mind of the Spirit. God hears and responds to the prayers of the Spirit. Now, some would ask, well, maybe that means then, why do I pray? Why would I have to pray then? If the Holy Spirit's there and he's praying for me, why do I have to pray? Well, we're commanded to pray, but prayer is us coming to God in submission. We don't always know what to pray. We sometimes get it wrong. 
However, it's okay when we don't know what to pray. We still submit ourselves before God. We still understand that he is the one who is the source of our help, the source of the strength that we need, and, and will give us whatever it is that we need according to his will in every situation. We don't have to pray perfectly. He knows that we aren't perfect. He understands that we have weakness. So what we have is this. On the one hand, we sometimes pray according to the will of God. And when we do, our prayers are right in line with what the Holy Spirit is praying on our behalf. But there's other times where we don't pray according to God's will. We pray for what we want. Maybe we pray for things that we, we haven't thought through. Maybe we just don't know what his will is for us. Maybe we're praying that, you know, oh, I have, oppor- I have opportunity in, in, to move to two different cities. Should I go here or should I go there? I really want this one. But that's not what God's will is for us. We just don't know that. But in this case, we have the spirit who's inside us saying he's praying for this. This is what he wants. But that's not what he needs. What he really needs is this. And he's the one making intercession for us, doing what is best for us according to his will, not ours. God is going to respond according to his own will. Now, as we grow and as we mature, as we're sanctified, our will will become more and more alongside his will. We're not always going to know everything. We're not always going to know, well, do I go to this city or that city? But when it comes to the things that God wants in our lives, we will pray more and more and more in line with his will as we grow and mature. And he will respond to that. But when we don't, the Holy Spirit is there to correct us. Either way, his will will be accomplished in our lives. Now, it's within this context of God accomplishing this, his will in us, that we come to verse 28. And verse 28 is a very familiar verse to most of us. A lot of people would say that this is their personal verse, right? This is their life verse. This is one that is quoted often, but one that we must be careful to take within its context. It has become a verse that people take far too generally and don't recognize all that it really entails or to whom it truly pertains. So look at verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We know, he starts off the verse saying, he's used this previously in our study, this is generally recognized truth. This is not new material, but this is common knowledge. This is something that we know is true. And what is it that we know? That God causes all things to work together for good. Now, some translations, it simply says, all things work together for good. The fact that God is causing this is, is absent. And there's some debate amongst the translators, but it's a relatively minor one. It's really a question of wording. Is the word for God used once or twice in this sentence? Because of the discrepancies in some of the early manuscripts, it's difficult to say, but most everyone agrees that the idea here is the same either way. As we go through verses 28 through 30, it's evident that God is the one who is at work here. The fact is that what is happening is happening because of what God is accomplishing, because of what God is doing. So what are all these things? This is one of the main questions about this verse. What is included in all things? Well, it seems kind of like a silly question to ask, because all things seems pretty all-encompassing, doesn't it? 
from the language that's used here, all things here is simply stated. It means all things. Now, with any verse or statement, the context determines the meaning. And here we're talking in the context of the sufferings that go on in the believer's life. So that's the focus here. That's, that's what Paul has been touching on, and that's what's definitely included here. So specifically, I believe that's what Paul has in mind, but that doesn't limit the statement to exclude other things as well. What Paul is saying here is that even though we are to go through personal suffering, God causes all things to work together for our good, including those sufferings and those trials that come into our lives. As we go through suffering, God uses that in our life for our good. Turn over to the book of James with me, James chapter 1. And as you're turning to James, I want to read, we've read this before, but back in in chapter 5 of Romans, um, in the early verses, Paul mentioned this as well. He said in Romans 5, 3, And not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance proven character, and proven character hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So Paul already talked about this um, back in chapter 5, but as we're probably all aware, James tells us the same thing in James chapter 1. So look at verse 2 of James chapter 1. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The suffering that we have isn't God being mean to us because he just wants to. It produces endurance in our lives, and the end result of that endurance is our glorification. When will we ultimately be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing? when we are in glory. That's the end result of sanctification. That's where we're headed. What we are eagerly hoping for with perseverance, as we saw in verse 25 of Romans chapter 8, because that hope does not disappoint. That's the end result of these trials that come into our lives. So back in Romans chapter 8, Paul's main thought is on the sufferings we have, but God causes all things to work for our good. This reaches out into other areas as well, such as even righteous things. We don't have as much problem talking about righteous things that go on in our lives, but we we recognize that God uses our ministries, our acts of love, our kindness, our prayers, as well as the acts that other people do for us. All these things in our lives work together for our good. But Also, I think we can include evil things, suffering, temptation, even sin. Now, we've talked about suffering, but when we're tempted, God can use that for our good by falling on our knees and coming to him for strength, even when that temptation comes into our life. Sin itself can be used for our good. Now, we have to be careful in saying that because I'm not saying in any way that sin is good, nor is sinning ever a good thing for a a believer. But once we have sinned, God can cause even that 
experience or the results or consequences even of that to benefit us by allowing us to despise that sin, to come to him in repentance, to observe and better appreciate his mercy. So sin is not good. And this verse isn't saying that everything that comes into our life is a good thing. But God uses all things to work together for good in our lives. Now, what is the good that comes from this? Well, ultimately, it's what we saw in James chapter 1, our completion, our perfection, the glory that awaits. This is where Paul is going with this discussion. This is part of the process to bring us to this completion. The things that happen to us now benefit us, but not always in the way that we think that they will. We go through things and we think to ourselves, what possible good can come of this? This has been going on a long time and no good has ever come of it for me. We don't always see immediate results or get immediate satisfaction by seeing benefits of these things in our lives. Remember Paul's thorn in the flesh that we looked at in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He wanted it removed. Did he see a benefit to it? No. He didn't at first, not until it was revealed to him that it was for his good. Many times people, even believers, become bitter with God because bad things happen to them. And they don't see how any good could possibly come from what's going on in their life. They become angry with God. But... As his children, we must first understand and believe what he says, that all things are working together for our good. When we get sick, when a loved one dies, when when we lose our jobs, it's all used for our benefit, for our good in some way. Maybe in ways that we can't see, but we trust him in what he's doing in our lives. Now, in this verse, we have to notice that it isn't without qualification. All these things work for good to those who love God. Now, what does that mean? It means that this isn't a verse for everyone. It isn't a verse that we can use to comfort our unbelieving friends, families, co-workers. It doesn't say that God uses all things in every situation for every person in the world to work together for their good. What point is Paul trying to get across here? That believers who are suffering now, awaiting glory, are receiving benefit from those sufferings. He's talking to a specific audience. In fact, in this verse, in the Greek language, the emphasis in this verse is on the phrase, to those who love God. That phrase comes at the very beginning of the sentence, which in the Greek language gives it that emphasis. We know to those who love God that all things work together for good. Who are those who love God? Believers. Only believers truly love God. Now we might say, but I know many people who aren't believers, but I know that they love God. Really? Because that's not what Scripture tells us. Back in chapter 3 of Romans, when talking about unbelievers... Paul said, no one seeks for God. They have no fear of God. We saw earlier, even in this chapter, that the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God and does not subject itself to the law of God. This this is not love. 
believers love God. Jesus told his disciples back in John chapter 14, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode with him. There's that indwelling, abiding relationship that we have with God as his children. But it's predicated on what? Loving him. And loving him means what? Keeping his word. That's obedience. That's action. That's living a life that is in submission and obedience to him. In case there's any question, he goes on in the next verse, verse 24 of John 14, and he says, He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. The believer loves God. Loving God means keeping his word. This kind of love is not a feeling. There are feelings of love. Even in scripture, there's, there's times where it talks about feelings of love. But that's not what this is talking about. This is love of action. This is agape love. This is love that produces an action, and our actions with God are lives of obedience as we keep his word. That's who this verse is directed to. Those who love God, believers and only believers. This verse is used by many Christians to comfort unbelievers through difficult times, but frankly, it simply doesn't pertain to them. Now, can God use tragic things to bring an unbeliever to salvation? Of course he can. But that's not what this verse is talking about, and it doesn't have anything to do with that. This verse is talking about believers in Jesus Christ. We do unbelievers a grave disservice by trying to use this verse out of context in an attempt to bring them some kind of comfort. Because, frankly, we're giving them false hope. Hope that the Bible doesn't give them. If they are unwilling to receive the gospel of God for salvation turn from their sin, and put their faith in him, then there is no hope for them. The gospel is the only hope that they have. That has to be taken care of first. There's two different phrases that are used here for believers. One is those who love God, which we just talked about. It's shown from our perspective. We love God. This is part of our relationship with him. But why do we love him? How can we love him? 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 tells us that the only reason that we are able to love at all is because he first loved us. He is the initiator of our salvation, which brings us to the second phrase that he uses here, to those who are called according to his purpose. Here is a truth presented from God's perspective. We were called according to his purpose. When Paul uses the term call or called in his epistles, he always uses it in what we, re we refer to as the effectual call. Simply stated, it means that the call of God is effective. It produces results. And the results are the positive responses of those who are called. Paul uses the term to be synonymous with believers. Those who have been called by God have come. They have been saved. It's always It always results in salvation. It's effective, and that's why we call it the effectual call. Now, it's a different picture 
than what is seen in some other parts of Scripture, mainly in the Gospels. For instance, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, For many are called, but few are chosen. In this context, the invitation goes out to many, but there are few who actually respond to it. And that's what's known as the general call. But Paul uses it in his writings in a different way. And when Paul uses this term, there is always the indication of a response. As we get into the next couple of verses, we'll see this to be the case there. So look back with me for a minute at chapter 1 of Romans. Paul used this same term to refer to the Romans in his greeting to them. Way back in the introduction of the letter, and we pick up in verse 5 of Romans chapter 1, he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul uses this, he uses it with the understanding that the called are saints. The called are believers, right? It's synonymous. Just like those who love God are believers, those who are called are believers. Why? Because those who truly love God obey him and have believed in his gospel. And those who are called by him, they answer that call. Once again, they believe in the gospel. We're getting more and more into the inner workings of God's plan in the entire salvation process here. Remember, I haven't mentioned it in a while, but remember the building blocks of Romans. Paul builds and reveals and progresses in the information that he's giving to us. By and large, we've mostly seen man's failures and responsibilities. Man sins. Man needs to be uh, to believe to be justified. Man needs to live a sanctified life. But now, we're into the working of the Holy Spirit. And we're getting more and more into the inner workings of God in this process. The Holy Spirit leads us, makes us alive, enables us to respond to his word, intercedes for us. I listed out nine things for you about the Holy Spirit's ministry at the beginning of our lesson. And now we're getting to the calling of God in the salvation process. And if we look at the end of verse 28, we get a little deeper. Those who are called are called according to his purpose. His purpose. What God has determined to accomplish in salvation. In his sovereign plan, he has determined to call people to himself for salvation. When we get to chapter 9, we'll get even a little deeper into this process. And we'll talk about the doctrine of election. Look Look with me over in chapter 9. We'll save our detailed discussion of this when we get to that chapter. But just look at what he says in verse 11 of chapter 9. He says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Here, once again, we see God's purpose worked out through his choice. Again, we're getting a little deeper into it, right? The building blocks, it's building more. The twins that he refers to here, he's talking about Jacob and Esau. God chose Jacob, but he did not choose Esau. 
But you see, even in this process, we see the same thing as in chapter 8. He calls according to his purpose. That's his own determination. God is the one who has made that choice. Turn over to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1. If you're not familiar with Ephesians chapter 1, the chapter starts off with a long run-on sentence from verses 13 all the uh, sorry, from verse 3 all the way through verse 14, where Paul gives us the Cliff's Notes version of God's plan of salvation, just a summary of the plan. Everything from what God determined before the foundation of the world to the redemption of his position in glory is found here. In verse 4, he talks about election again, God's choice. He says he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Then in verse 5, we see that he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. We're going to see that word predestined in the coming verses in Romans chapter 8. But we've already seen in previous studies that we have been adopted as sons. Here we see that his plan for that was in motion before we were ever born, before the world began, according to his will, it says at the end of the verse. But look down with me at verse 11, which is the real verse I wanted you to see here. He says, also, we have obtained an inheritance. And we've talked about our inheritance in Romans as well. We are fellow heirs with Christ. You see, this is all related to what we've been talking about. But he goes on. Having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Again, we see his purpose worked out through salvation to those who were predestined, working this all out according to the counsel of his will. You see, we're we're getting into the deep stuff here, getting a glimpse into the inner workings and plans of God in this process. We've seen what he's done. He provided his son. He sent him to earth in the flesh. He had to die for our sins. We had to trust in that in order to be justified, place our faith and trust in his work on the cross. But why? Why did he do it? Why did he call us? Simply because it was his will. It was his purpose. God, in his sovereignty, his providence, decided to do it this way. Again, we'll talk more about this in coming weeks. But we're just getting this glimpse, another block to build on in our study of God's plan of salvation. While you're in Ephesians, look over in chapter 3 of Ephesians. We see another example of this. In verse 11, he says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Once again, we see his purpose, his eternal purpose, was carried out through Jesus Christ. The purpose of accomplishing salvation the way that he did. Turn with me to one more passage, 2 Timothy chapter 1. And we're almost done for today. This will be the last passage that we look at this morning. Paul writes to Timothy in this letter, his second letter to Timothy, giving him final instructions and encouragement before Paul's death. He tells him in verse 8 of chapter 1, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Now, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? 
suffer along with me, Timothy. Suffer for the gospel's sake. You can see, even at the end of Paul's life, he still considered suffering to be inconsequential in light of what was to come. But he continues on in verse 9. So it's God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. We talked about works in detail in chapter 4 of Romans. No one is saved by their works, not because of anything that they've done. Works don't save you. Only faith saves you. Faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But here we get more of that inner working. God called Paul. God called Timothy. God calls his saints, which are all believers. Not according to works. Not according to anything that they, that we have done. But according to what? His own purpose and his own grace. Unmerited favor. We'll talk more about this in our next lesson. But God didn't look ahead in time and say, Oh, that guy or that gal is going to do a lot with their life. I'm going to call them to salvation someday. No, it wasn't according to works. It was according to his purpose. God willed it. It's what he wanted. That's what it was. Now, why did he want it? Why was that his will? We don't know that. That's not for us to know. Maybe someday, maybe someday in glory, we'll be able to sit with God, talk to him, and, and things like that will be revealed to us. I don't know. But what I do know is that for now, it was his will. It was his purpose. And knowing that it was his purpose is enough for me. Back in Romans 8, in the next two verses, we see the working of the purpose of God spelled out in his plan of salvation. How he brought that about. What were the steps in it? And it also shows us the reason for the statement in verse 28. All things work together for good. In verses 29 through 30, we'll see five of the most crucial elements of God's plan of salvation. We see the process of salvation from the beginning, way back before the foundation of the world, to the end, looking forward to eternity future. It's a work in which he exercises complete sovereign control, but... We're not going to see it today. My original plan was to take us all the way through chapter 30, or verse 30 in Romans 8 this morning, but we're not going to get there. So there's just too much here to try to rush through. So we'll end here for today, and we'll take a look at that um, in our next lesson.